Uh, you will notice inside your program that there is an insert. It's a discussion guide. We're in a series of uh, conversations over these weeks about how do you build a life that is like Christ. And some of the things that we're talking about on Sundays, we're continuing the conversation during the week in a small group setting. And that insert will be your discussion guide uh, in your small group this week. And some of it will relate to what we talked about this morning, and some of it will take you beyond what we talked about this morning. If you are not currently in a small group and you think you'd find it meaningful to uh, be a part of that conversation, all of our groups, every one of our groups is ready for you to come this week. We would just love to have new guests and friends uh, come and be a part and join in the conversation. And if you want to know more about what groups are available to you, what times they meet and uh, what locations and so on, you can see Dana right down here or you can talk to me after the service. We would be glad to fill you in a little bit about what's happening with small groups. So you can also check that out on our website. In a minute, I'm going to be reading from the New Testament book of Romans, the fifth chapter. So if you want to open a Bible and uh, be prepared to read along with me in a moment, I think you'll find that, that helpful. How do you build a life that's like Christ? What are the building blocks that come together to build a life that is like Christ? Well, first of all, you need a sense of who God is and have a connection with him in your life. So last week we talked about who is God. And today we're talking about what is salvation? How is it that we connect our lives to who God is. Jesus gives us a little glimpse into who he is and what God is like in John 15:13 when he says, "Greater love has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends." That's the kind of God that we are invited to connect with and have relationship with. Uh, I've told some of you this story before, but it was in December of 2006 in Baghdad that uh, some of our servicemen were running a patrol in the city. And uh, as they were just going through the city, kind of uneventful, making sure that the peace was being maintained, suddenly some insurgents jumped out from hiding and they threw a grenade at a Humvee that was doing the patrol. Private First Class Ross McGinnis was up in the, the gunnery section of the Humvee. And so he saw the grenade come and it landed right at his feet. And he immediately began to do what he'd been trained to do. And that was to yell, grenade! Only his training at that point said, you yell and then you leap. But he had four comrades. He had four of his buddies that were in the lower section of the Humvee. And he noticed this grenade had gotten wedged in a corner. And there was no way his friends were going to get out. And so he yells, grenade. And then he threw his body down on the grenade and absorbed almost all of the explosion, which immediately killed him. And his buddies Though they uh, took some shrapnel, all survived and all are well today. 
uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, McGinnis was given the Medal of Freedom for his heroic act. And in light of that, USA Today ran a story, and then there were some interviews that you could find on YouTube if you wanted to look at it. It's very inspiring. But uh, Staff Sergeant Ian Newland commented that not a day goes by that he doesn't think about the sacrifice that McGinnis made for him. Who willingly gave his life so that his buddies could live. He said, every time I smell the freshly shampooed hair of my little girl, every time my little boy climbs up into my lap, every time I feel the soft touch of my wife, I think about McGinnis and the gift he gave me to have my life. And somebody said, well, you know, how do you respond to such an unrepayable gift? I mean, what do you do with that? And McGinnis said, I choose to live every day of my life to the fullest because of what McGinnis gave for me. Now, friends, on a much bigger eternal scale, that is what Jesus Christ has done for you and has done for me. He thrust himself into a deadly situation on our behalf, and he took the blow, the death blow that should have been ours, and gave himself so that we might live. And... The, the intriguing, unmistakable piece of, of what Christ has done is what uh, the comrades of McGinnis found out, and that's the rest of his uh, team that were in that Humvee, was that McGinnis was the only hope that day. He's the only one that could have done anything about that grenade because the rest of the guys were down below. Nobody else even knew it happened. Nobody else even saw it. Nobody else could have, have given themselves for the sake of the others. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can take what sin has done to us and this world and do something redemptive with it. And so let me be as clear as I know how to be about that. Buddhism cannot take the grenade and save your life. Islam cannot do that for you. Oprah's spirituality cannot do that for you. Jesus is unmistakably and incomparably the only one that can do that for you. And Paul begins to tell us about that in Romans chapter 5. And so if you have that open, let's look at some verses together. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12, Paul said, Therefore, which means there's been a whole lot to be talked about already. You'd do well to go back and read some of the prior verses. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, 
For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken to account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. Verse 15. But the gift, talking about Jesus, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? One more verse. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So keep your Bible open and look at these verses as I talk about them for just a moment and hopefully bring a little clarity to what Paul just said. And uh, without apology, we're going to be very uh, theological today. And we're going to be looking at the theology of what salvation is. And so I'll be introducing a number of concepts to you and a number of multisyllable words that could be intimidating. And I just want to say to you, don't be intimidated because I think God is with us and wants to unpack some of this and make it clear and and help it make sense to us today. So the first thing that we see in this text is that, in effect, Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he chose to eat forbidden fruit, pulled the pin on a grenade. That's more or less what happened. And that explosion that would come from his rebellion and from that sin was going to take out all of humanity. Then we're told that the law was given by God to help us to see that predicament. Just like the guys that were in the lower part of the Humvee didn't even know the grenade had come in to the vehicle until McGinnis had called out that it had. A lot of us don't know the dire predicament that we're in except for the law, the commands of God. And, of course, those primarily came to us through the time of Moses and his trek up Sinai and his coming down with the tablets, etc. Now... Here's the fact of the matter. Uh, We've got a beautiful day outside. If we were to go outside and you were to look up in the sky, you would uh, most likely not see a star. Although the sky up there is filled with stars. And, of course, you're aware of the fact that because our sun is so brilliant and bright during the daytime, we can't see the stars. But when the earth continues to rotate and we are on the other side and it's dark and the sky is blackened, then you can see stars everywhere, hundreds and thousands of stars. So it is with sin and the dire circumstance that we're in. You just kind of cruise along in life. It's likely that you won't notice that you won't be able to take in the the gravity of what is going on about life and and connection with God and sin and separation from God, unless there is some kind of darker backdrop that allows us to see in contrast all the stars. And that's what the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law does for us. It provides that backdrop for us, and then we can see, wow, I've not always esteemed God first and best. I've sometimes had little idols in my life. 
I have broken uh, God's will and God's ways in dishonoring parents. And I've lied and I've cheated and so on it goes. That's the purpose of the law, to help us to see there's a bomb that's been dropped on you and the pen's been pulled and you're about to go under. Now, what Paul goes on to say is that there's only one man who can do anything about that, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one that can fall on that grenade and absorb its blow into himself and deliver us, save us. How does that take place? Well, let me walk you through a number of those multisyllable theological words, and uh, let's unpack them and think about them for just a moment. The first one is justification. Now, justification says God is just. God will make sure that justice is carried out with respect to wrongs that have been committed. So because you have sinned and I have sinned, everyone has sinned, there is a day of reckoning. There is a judging. There is a condemning that is coming our way. We stand condemned already. God will not wink at the sin. God will not shrug at it. He will not pretend like it's no big deal. Let's just kind of sweep it under the rug and move on. He will judge every sin and every sinner and condemn sinners to an eternity separated from him. The only, only, only hope we have is that somehow somebody else could take our deserved punishment and we be pardoned. That's the only way it happens. You go, well, I don't like that. I'm not sure I like justice. I, I kind of like God to just give me a little slack, cut me a little mercy, and, uh, you know, we just let it go on and, and, and we get along. Well, let me say it to you this way. Let's suppose that some bad guy got hold of your wife or your daughter and ravaged and abused her. At that point, when the guy's caught and standing before a judge... You don't want the judge to say, well, you know, I understand. You had a pretty difficult childhood. You didn't have parents that loved you the way that you should have been loved. Uh, we're going to just say, you know, not guilty and let's do better. You don't want a judge to do that. You want a judge to be just and to level the appropriate punishment that should go with that kind of sin and crime. And so it is. With God, he's just. But here's the thing about justification. Jesus said, I'll take that punishment. He is guilty. He does deserve punishment and condemnation. But I'll take it upon me. And you pardon him. That'd be like somebody ravaging and abusing my children. And the guy be sentenced in a court of law and my coming forth and saying, you know what, I'll take his punishment for what he did to my children. Set him free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. 
He's fallen on the grenade. He's taken the death and the devastation that we deserve. Now, how has that happened? Uh, Romans 5.16 says, Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. How has that happened? Well, there's another word, propitiation. Propitiation simply means this. Someone else took the punishment. Someone else took all of the devastation and condemnation that should have been mine. And Jesus is the propitiation. We're told in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation of our sins. Which leads us to another word, expiation. Expiation is where not only has someone else taken my punishment, someone else has taken the brunt of my crime, but now I have had my sinful nature and ways taken away. I have been made clean. Not only am I pardoned from my sinful ways, but I have now been cleansed of those sinful ways so that I now have new, fresh, clean slate life. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is that expiation. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, to expiate, to take away our sinfulness. Now, this past week was a very significant Jewish day. Anybody know what the day was? Okay, Yom Kippur. Um, Yom Kippur is the high holy day in the Jewish faith basically means the Day of Atonement. It's such a weighty day and concept, a lot of times it's just referred to as the day. The Day of Atonement. And if you were to go back and look at Leviticus 16 and 17, you'd find uh, the background for what Yom Kippur is all about. There you will see God dealing with humanity and the sinfulness of humanity in this way. A priest goes and gets two Goats, both of which are without blemish, without any kind of defect whatsoever. And we're to understand that those goats represent our lives. And the priest goes to the first goat and takes a knife and cuts its throat and it dies, thereby symbolizing that goat took the the penalty and the price of all that my sin has done. Propitiation. And then the second goat, the priest goes and lays his hands on that, symbolizing placing all of our sins upon that goat. And then that goat is led away out into the wilderness called the scapegoat, and thereby uh, symbolizing taking away our sin and our sinful ways. Expiation. So on one hand, you've got a goat who pays the price and dies in our place. And on the other hand, you've got a goat that then takes away our sinfulness so that we are both pardoned and have a new, clean slate. That's what Yom Kippur is all about. And the Bible makes it clear that what God was working through the priestly sacrificial system way back when, he now has brought to fruition and to fulfillment 
in the person of Jesus. That Jesus, in fact, became both goats on our behalf. He became the propitiation. He took our punishment and he became the expiation. He took away our sinfulness. That's why in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up on the scene and John the Baptist sees him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was that Old Testament reference from Leviticus 16 and 17. Which leads us to the next word, and that is conviction. Conviction is kind of a remarkable thing that takes place in our head and thinking and in our heart and feelings. And that is we begin to be convinced. I am a sinful person. I am a broken, busted person. I am one who stands to be condemned and judged and punished. I need a Savior an advocate, someone that can justify me and take my place. And what we are to understand is that God, the Holy Spirit, approaches my life, approaches your life, and begins to stir within us, stir in our thinking, stir in our feelings, to convince us of that reality, to convict us. So we're told in John 16, 8, He... The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. That is the need to be righteous and judgment that it is going to happen. That it is going to come. Now, let me just be as clear as I can at this point. Our fallen state is so extensive. We can be so deceived. We can be in such a cloud of misrepresentation that we cannot get it. That we need somebody to fall on the sin grenade in our behalf. Unless God the Spirit comes to us and begins to stir us about that. And unless, like McGinnis, the, the Spirit of God begins to say, Grenade! Grenade! And we become convinced that it is a catastrophic thing that we're in. That's how much God loves us. He's not only, as God the Son, been the justifier, propitiation, expiation, but He's also God the Spirit who convinces and convicts us about all that being true. Which leads us to say then in the fifth place, once we begin to get it, once it begins to, to come true to us and be real to us, we're faced with a response. Do you shrug that off and go, he just thinks there's a, a grenade up there? Or do we take cover and hope that somebody's covered the bomb for us? Repentance is the latter. Repentance is our making a choice and a response to God to say, you know what, I've been going this way, I've been going in my own way, I've been going in my own willfulness, I have continued in my sinfulness, but I'm going to stop, I'm going to turn, and I'm going to turn away from my sinfulness and turn toward God. Now, it's very important that you get 
the significance and the difference between repentance and remorse. Remorse is saying, you know what, I can see that I'm kind of screwing up here. I feel bad about that. But remorse makes no change. Remorse just kind of feels bad about it, but keeps on going in that direction. I sure wish I wasn't doing this. I sure wish it wasn't this bad. I sure wish that I wasn't screwing up. And just keeps going going that way. Repentance, on the other hand, stops and turns and begins to go in the direction of God. And so the question is, when God begins to work conviction in you and begins to convince you about things, how do you respond to that? Do you respond with just a little remorse or do you, in fact, repent and turn? Romans 2, 4 and 5 says it this way. God's kindness, his patience with us, his generous ways with us, his long suffering with us, his continuing to kind of knock on the door of our heart and saying, would you let me in? His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. So in other words, it's a pretty audacious and dangerous thing to do to have God continue to stir you, to continue to interact with your thoughts, to kind of create this sense of I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn and go in the way of God. But I kind of thumb my nose at God and keep, you know, my heart gets hard at that point. He's like, okay, well, all the wrath, all the judgment, all the condemnation that I've been holding back, man, you're just storing it up. There will be a day that, man, it just, it blows up on you. Because the pin has been pulled on that grenade. And then in the sixth place, if we repent and we turn from our sinful ways and we start turning toward God and opening our life to God, then we're told that that same spirit that convicted us then enlivens us, quickens us, causes us to come alive to God as Steve was sharing in his story a few moments ago. So we we can't do that. We can't cause ourselves to come alive to God. Only His Spirit can cause us to come alive to God. We can't even determine that we need to repent. His Spirit convicts us about that, and, and when we do repent, then His Spirit will enliven us and quicken us to Christ. We're told in John 3, verse 3, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Has this regeneration, new life from above, second birth kind of experience. And it only happens by the Spirit. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So, here's something that is, I think, crucial for you to remember about the nature of regeneration. When I repent... And start coming toward God and the spirit begins to regenerate and quicken me alive. That will always bring reformation. That will always reform my life. That will always bring change. I will never be the same once I have come alive to Christ. Regeneration always leads to reformation, to a change. But... Reformation does not lead to regeneration. You follow me? 
I'm walking this way. I began to figure it out. I'm kind of living a busted, sinful, broken life. I need to do better. I'm going to make this, this list of resolutions. I am going to be a better person. Reformation does not lead to regeneration. That's why the scriptures say salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. It's not about me reforming my life and just living a better life and being a better person and all that kind of stuff. That does not bring life. That just brings about a little better morality. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done, so none of us can boast about it. This is all about God doing something in us because He loves us, He wants to gift us, and He will get the honor and the glory for what He's done in us. Then the last piece is what we would refer to as sanctification. To sanctify means to make holy. Holy means separated unto God. And so if we have a holy sanctuary, that is a building space that has been separated from everything else and just dedicated to God and God's use. Okay? And so it is with a life. A life can be made holy or sanctified so that we become no longer our own, but we become His. And His hand is on us, and His hand is transforming and changing us, and we become holy people. That's not just moralistic, good behaving people. That's a people that have separated themselves and placed themselves in the hand of God. And that's what happens. When salvation takes place, I recognize the good gift that Jesus is giving me in his sacrifice. I am convinced and convicted of that by God's spirit. I then make a turn and repent. I'm regenerated and that regeneration brings reformation. I begin to have all these changes go on in my life. And all of that is a part of the process called sanctification, where I am becoming more and more like Christ. I am more and more God's man, God's woman separated unto him in, in relationship and for his purposes. First Peter 2, 7 and 8 says it this way, The stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is what it looks like. I'm, I'm building this life in sanctification that is like the Christ life. And he is the cornerstone of all that. You know how cornerstones work. That would be like the first piece in the ancient days that people would use to build a, a, a building. And then every other stone would be connected to that corner in some kind of way. Now, here's what Peter also recognized. He said, for some, Jesus is now in their sanctification, in their regeneration, in their transformation, all that kind of stuff. He is their cornerstone. That's what I'm building my life around. But for others, he is that stumbling stone. I'm kind of getting it. I see what you're talking about. I don't know that I want that. And that's what causes me to fall on into the condemnation that awaits for me. So the question is, how are you relating to Jesus? In such a way that he becomes your life and your cornerstone? Or in such a way that he becomes a stumbling block over which you fall? Now, friends, this is so weighty. This is so big and so eternal. The writer of the Hebrews got it when he said in 2-3, 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a rhetorical question. We can't. We can't escape. This is it, friends. This is the hope. This is the help. This is the saving grace of God. What will you do with that? How will you respond? We talked a moment ago in the testimony. God's all the time up to divine appointments. Sometimes we didn't know he was doing it. He scheduled it. We just happened to show up someplace and we're like, he's there. And he intended for us to meet together in a certain way. And today and right now is a divine appointment. God knew you would be here. God had already led me and the rest of this church to be in this series and for me to talk about what we're talking about today. Because God wanted you to be able to hear what salvation is all about. How will you respond to that? Let me just say, if you respond to it with an open heart and in an affirmative way, I get it, I want it, I believe it, God, please give it, then you will walk into His saving grace and His redemptive and regenerative power in your life. But if you shrug that off, and I don't mean to overstate this at all, then in effect you have blasphemed God. You say, well, I don't even know what blasphemy is. Well, the basic definition of blasphemy is this. It is a dishonoring or an insulting of the person of God. So I told you how Staff Sergeant McKellen had responded to McGinnis's sacrifice for his life. I think about it every day. I'm grateful every day. I can't even enjoy my family without thinking about how McGinnis had given himself so that I can have this life. What if the staff sergeant had instead kind of said, well, he, he made the choice to fall on the bomb. You know, I'm glad I'm still alive, but, you know, he did what he did. I didn't have any control over that. Sorry he died. That would be a disrespect and a dishonoring of what that private did for those in that Humvee with him. And that's what we're getting at with blasphemy. It's God saying, I've done all of this for you. Will you come? Will you receive? Will you allow me to bring an embrace on your life that changes you forever? And for you to do anything from shrug that off to thumb your nose at that is dishonoring and disrespectful. Now, that is a big deal. But the Bible makes it clear God is so patient and so gracious and so loving. He'll forgive even your disrespect and your blasphemy toward him. Now, you remember last week we talked about God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming against the Father, blaspheming against the Son, 
These are horrible, disrespectful things to do, but he'll forgive you for that if at some point you begin to get it and your heart turns toward him. But he says in Luke 12, 10, blaspheming the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It has eternal consequences to it. He said, well, I don't even know that I'm getting that. What, what are you saying? See, the, the, the Spirit is constantly at work to convict. To convince you in your thoughts and in your feelings and the sense and the totality. God's way is, why don't you come? It's a wooing. It's a drawing. It's a pleading. It's a calling. And if you choose to dishonor and to blaspheme and to ultimately reject that, that is what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it can't be forgiven because He, the Holy Spirit, is what gives you the capacity to repent. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one that gives you the capacity to be regenerated. And so if you shut out whatever God's Spirit is doing in you, then there is no hope for you to turn because the one who has the power to turn you, you've shut out. And so it's a very serious thing with eternal consequences. Now, I don't want to leave this at a point of fear and trepidation, although those are realities. I want you to understand, you've got a a loving God who has been willing to throw himself on the sin bomb, the sin grenade in your place, to absorb the blows that we should have taken. We're talking about a loving God who has a loving gift for which the rest of your life and all of eternity can be different. That's what I hope you get and take with you today. How will you respond to that? What we discovered a moment ago is the proper response is repentance, not just remorse. Would you pray with me about that? I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment, if you will, if you're comfortable with that, to kind of focus and think about all that we've been saying. A lot of big, multisyllable words and concepts and ideas. But the basic essence, friend, is this. God loves you. John 3.16 says it this way, that God loved you so much that he gave his son. And if you would believe on him, you would not perish. You would have everlasting life. So, Father, I pray for my friends in the house today. Would you continue to touch and draw the heart, convince the mind? I pray for my friends to say yes to the gift that Jesus is and to be regenerated, to be quickened alive to you. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.